Section 19 of Celebrated Crimes, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Shaliva Maliam. Celebrated Crimes, Volume 1, by Alexandre Dumas. Translated by G. B. Ives. Section 19. The Borgias. Chapter 10, Part 2. Almost at the same time, Rome was terrified by another murder. Don Giovanni Gervilioni, a gentleman by birth and a brave soldier, captain of the Pope's men-at-arms, was attacked one evening by the Spiri, as he was on his way home from supping with Don Alessio Pignatelli. One of the men asked his name, and, as he pronounced it, seeing that there was no mistake, plunged a dagger into his breast, while a second man with a backstroke of his sword cut off his head, which lay actually at his feet, before his body had time to fall. The governor of Rome lodged a complaint against this assassination with the Pope, but quickly perceiving by the way his intimation was received, that he would have done better to say nothing, he stopped the inquiries he had started, so that neither of the murderers was ever arrested. But the rumour was circulated that Cesar, in the short stay he had made at Rome, had had a rendezvous with, with Chaviglioni's wife, who was a Borgia by birth, and that her husband, when he heard of this infringement of conjugal duty, had been angry enough to threaten her and her lover too. The threat had reached Cesar's ears, who, making a long arm of Michelotto, had himself at Forli, struck down Gervigliani in the street of Rome. Another unexpected death followed so quickly on that of Don Giovanni Gervigliani, that it could not but be attributed to the same originator, if not the same cause. Monsignore Agnelli of Mantua, Archbishop of Cotenza, clerk of the chamber and vice-legate of Viterbo, having fallen into disgrace with his holiness, how it is not known, was poisoned at his own table, at which he had passed a good part of the night in cheerful conversation with three or four guests, the poison gliding meanwhile through his veins. Then, going to bed in perfect health, he was found dead in the morning." His possessions were at once divided into three portions. The land and houses were given to the Duke of Valentinois, the bishopric went to Francesco Borgia, son of Calixtus III, and the office of clerk of the chamber was sold for five thousand ducats to Ventura Bonassai, a merchant of Siena, who produced this sum for Alexander, and settled down the very same day in the Vatican. This last death served the purpose of determining a point of law hitherto uncertain. As Monsignore Arnelli's natural heirs had made some difficulty about being disinherited, Alexander issued a brief whereby he took from every cardinal and every priest the right of making a will, and declared that all their property should henceforth devolve upon him. But Cesar was stopped short in the midst of his victories, thanks to the two hundred thousand ducats that yet remained in his treasury, 
Ludovicus Vorda had levied five hundred men-at-arms from Burgundy and eight thousand Swiss infantry, with whom he had entered Lombardy. So Trivuls, to face this enemy, had been compelled to call back Yves de Legre and the troops that Louis XII had lent to Cesar. Consequently, Cesar, leaving behind a body of pontifical soldiery as garrison at Forli and Imola, betook himself with the rest of his force to Rome. It was Alexander's wish that his entry should be a triumph, so when he learned that the quartermasters of the army were only a few leagues from the town, he sent out runners to invite the royal ambassadors, the cardinals, the prelates, the Roman barons and municipal dignitaries to make procession with all their suite to meet the Duke of Valentinois, and, as it always happens, that the pride of those who command is surpassed by the baseness of those who obey, the orders were not only fulfilled to the latter, but beyond it. The entry of Cesar took place on the 26th of February, 1500. Although this was the great jubilee year, the festivals of the carnival began none the less for that, and were conducted in a manner even more extravagant and licentious than usual and the conqueror, after the first day, prepared a new display of ostentation, which he concealed under the veil of a masquerade. As he was pleased to identify himself with the glory, genius, and fortune of the great man whose name he bore, he resolved on a representation of the triumph of Julius Caesar to be given on the Piazza di Navona, the ordinary place for holding the carnival fete. The next day, therefore, he and his retinue started from that square, and traversed all the streets of Rome, wearing classical costumes and riding in antique cars, on one of which Cesar stood, clad in the robe of an emperor of old, his brow crowned with a golden laurel wreath, surrounded by lictors, soldiers, and ensign-bearers, who carried banners whereon was inscribed the motto, Aut Caesar, Aut Nihil. Finally, on the fourth Sunday in Lent, the Pope conferred upon Cesar the dignity he had so long coveted, and appointed him General and John Falonieri of the Holy Church. In the meanwhile, Sforza had crossed the Alps and passed the Lake of Como, amid acclamations of joy from his former subjects, who had quickly lost the enthusiasm that the French army and Louise's promises had inspired. These demonstrations were so noisy at Milan that Trivuls, judging that there was no safety for a French garrison in remaining there, made his way to Navarra. Experience proved that he was not deceived, for scarcely had the Milanese observed his preparation for departure when a suppressed excitement began to spread through the town, and soon the streets were filled with armed men. This murmuring crowd had to be passed through, sword in hand and lance in rest, and scarcely had the French got outside the gates when the mob rushed out after the army into the country, pursuing them with shouts and hooting as far as the banks of the Ticino. Trivius left four hundred lances at Novaro, as well as three thousand Swiss that Yves de Lega had brought from the Romagna, and directed his course with the rest of the army towards Mortara where he stopped at last to await the help he had demanded from the King of France. Behind him, Cardinal Ascanio and Ludovico, 
entered Milan amid the acclamations of the whole town. Neither of them lost any time, and wishing to profit by this enthusiasm, Ascanio undertook to besiege the castle of Milan, while Ludovico should cross up the Ticino and attack Novaro. Their besiegers and besieged were sons of the same nation, for Yves d'Allegre had scarcely as many as three hundred French with him, and Ludovico five hundred Italians. In fact, for the last sixteen years, the Swiss had been practically the only infantry in Europe, and all the powers came, purse in hand, to draw from the mighty reservoir of their mountains. The consequence was that these rude children of William Tell, put up to auction by the nations, and carried away from the humble, hardy life of a mountain people, into cities of wealth and pleasure, had lost not their ancient courage, but that rigidity of principle for which they had been distinguished before their intercourse with other nations. From being models of honour and good faith, they had become a kind of marketable ware, always ready for sale to the highest bidder. The French were the first to experience this venality, which later on proved so fatal to Ludovico Sforza. Now, the Swiss in the garrison at Novara had been in communication with their compatriots in the vanguard of the ducal army, and when they found that they, who as a fact were unaware that Ludovico's treasure was nearly exhausted, were better fed as well as better paid than themselves, they offered to give up the town and go over to the Milanese if they could be certain of the same pay. Ludovico, as we may well suppose, closed with his bargain. The whole of Novara was given up to him except the citadel, which was defended by Frenchmen. Thus the enemy's army was recruited by three thousand men. Then Ludovico made the mistake of stopping to besiege the castle instead of marching on to Mortara with a new reinforcement. The result of this was that Louis the Twelfth, to whom runners had been sent by Trivuls, understanding his perilous position, hastened the departure of the French gendarmerie, who were already collected to cross into Italy, sent off the bailiff of Dijon to levy new Swiss forces, and ordered Cardinal Amboise, his prime minister, to cross at the Alps and take up a position at Asti, to hurry on the work of collecting the troops. There the cardinal found a nest egg of three thousand men. La Trimouille added fifteen hundred lances and six thousand French infantry. Finally, the bailiff of Dijon arrived with ten thousand Swiss, so that, counting the troops which Trivuls had at Mortara, Louis Twelfth found himself master on the other side of the Alps of the first army any French king had ever led out to battle. Soon, by good marching, and before Ludovico knew the strength of or even the existence of this army, it took up a position between Novara and Milan, cutting off all communication between the duke and his capital. He was, therefore, compelled, in spite of his inferior numbers, to prepare for a pitched battle. But it so happened that just when the preparations for a decisive engagement were being made on both sides, the Swiss died, learning that the sons of Helvetia, were on the paint of cutting one another's throats, sent orders to all the Swiss serving in either army to break their engagements and return to the fatherland. 
but during the two months that had passed between the surrender of Novara and the arrival of the French army before the town, there had been a very great change in the face of things, because Ludovico Sforza's treasure was now exhausted. New confabulations had gone on between the outposts, and this time, thanks to the money sent by Louis the Twelfth, it was the Swiss in the service of France who were found to be the better fed and the better paid. The worthy Helvetians, since they no longer fought for their own liberty, knew the value of their blood too well to allow a single drop of it to be spilt for less than its weight in gold. The result was that, as they had betrayed Yves de Legre, they resolved to betray Ludovico Sforza too, and while the recruits brought in by the bailiff of Dijon were standing firmly by the French flag, careless of the order of the Diet, Ludovico's auxiliaries declared that in fighting against their Swiss brethren, they would be acting in disobedience to the Diet, and would risk capital punishment in the end, a danger that nothing would induce them to incur unless they immediately received the arrears of their pay. The Duke, who had spent the last ducat he had with him, and was entirely cut off from his capital, knew that he could not get money till he had fought his way through to it, and therefore invited the Swiss to make one last effort, promising them not only the pay that was in arrears, but a double hire. But, unluckily, the fulfilment of this promise was dependent on the doubtful issue of a battle, and the Swiss replied, that they had far too much respect for their country to disobey its decree, and that they loved their brothers far too well to consent to shed their blood without reward, and therefore Sforza would do well not to count upon them, since indeed the very next day they proposed to return to their homes. The Duke then saw that all was lost, but he made a last appeal to their honour adjuring them at least to ensure his personal safety, by making it a condition of capitulation. But they replied that even if a condition of such a kind would not make capitulation impossible, it would certainly deprive them of advantages which they had a right to expect, and on which they counted as indemnification for the arrears of their pay. They pretended, however, at last, that they were touched by the prayers of the man whose orders they had obeyed so long, and offered to conceal him, dressed in their clothes among their ranks. This proposition was barely plausible, for Sforza was short, and by this time an old man, and he could not possibly escape recognition in the midst of an army where the oldest was not past thirty, and the shortest not less than five foot six. Still, this was his last chance, and he did not reject it at once, but tried to modify it, so that it might help him in his trades. His plan was to disguise himself as a Franciscan monk, so that mounted on a shabby horse he might pass for their chaplain. The others, Galeazzo di San Severino, who commanded under him, and his two brothers, were all tall men, so, adopting the dress of common soldiers, they hoped they might escape detection in the Swiss ranks. Scarcely were these plans settled, when the Duke heard that a capitulation was signed between Trivulz and the Swiss, who had made no stipulation in favour of him and his generals. They were to go over the next day with arms and baggage, 
right into the French army, so the last hope of the wretched Ludovico and his generals must needs be in their disguise. And so it was. San Severino and his brothers took their place in the ranks of the infantry, and Sforza took his among the baggage, clad in a monk's frock, with a hood pulled over his eyes. The army marched off, but the Swiss, who had first trafficked in their blood, now trafficked in their honour. The French were warned of the disguise of Sforza and his generals, and thus they were all four recognised, and Sforza was arrested by Trimouille himself. It is said that the price paid for this treason was the town of Bellindona, for it then belonged to the French, and when the Swiss returned to their mountains and took possession of it, Louis the Twelfth took no steps to get it back again. When Ascanius Forza, who, as we know, had stayed at Milan, learned the news of this cowardly desertion, he supposed that his cause was lost, and that it would be the best plan for him to fly, before he found himself a prisoner in the hands of his brother's old subjects. Such a change of face on the people's part would be very natural, and they might propose perhaps to purchase their own pardon at the price of his liberty. So he fled by night with the chief nobles of the Gibelin party, taking the road to Piacenza on his way to the kingdom of Naples. But when he arrived at Rivolta, he remembered that there was living in that town an old friend of his childhood, by name Conrad Lando, whom he had helped to much wealth in his days of power, and as Ascanio and his companions were extremely tired, he resolved to beg his hospitality for a single night. Conrad received them with every sign of joy, putting all his house and servants at their disposal. But scarcely had they retired to bed, when he sent a runner to Piacenza to inform Carlo Orsini, at that time commanding the Venetian garrison, that he was prepared to deliver up Cardinal Ascanio and the chief men of the Milanese army. Carlo Orsini did not care to resign to another so important an expedition, and, mounting hurriedly with twenty-five men, he first surrounded Conrad's house, and then entered, sword in hand, the chamber wherein Ascanio and his companions lay, and being surprised in the middle of their sleep, they yielded without resistance. The prisoners were taken to Venice, but Louis the Twelfth claimed them, and they were given up. Thus the King of France found himself master of Ludovico Sforza, and of Ascanio, of a legitimate nephew of the great Francesco Sforza, named Hermes, of the two bastards, named Alessandro and Cortino, and of Francesco, son of the unhappy John Galeazza, who had been poisoned by his uncle. Louis the Twelfth, wishing to make an end of the whole family at a blow, forced Francesco to enter cloister, shut up Cardinal Ascanio in the tower of Borges, threw into prison Alessandro, Cortino, and Hermes, and finally, after transferring the wretched Ludovico from the fortress of Pierre-Russis to Lys-Saint-Georges, he relegated him for good and all to the castle of Locher, where he lived for ten years in solitude and utter destitution, and there died, cursing the day when the idea first came into his head of enticing the French into Italy. 
The news of the catastrophe of Ludovico and his family caused the greatest joy at Rome, for, while the French were consolidating their power in Milanese territory, the Holy See was gaining ground in the Romagna, where no further opposition was offered to Cesar's conquest. So the runners who brought the news were rewarded with a valuable presence, and it was published throughout the whole town of Rome, to the sound of the trumpet and drum. The war-cry of Louis, France, and that of Orsina also, ran through all the streets, which in the evening were illuminated, as though Constantinople or Jerusalem had been taken. And the Pope gave the people fetes and fireworks, without troubling his head the least in the world, either about its being a holy week, or because the Jubilee had attracted more than two hundred thousand people to Rome, the temporal interests of his family seeming to him far more important than the spiritual interests of his subjects. End of section 19